morning. Last week, our brother Chris Lee delivered another very impressive and very inspiring message, one which we all need to hear over and over again. It was perhaps the best message that I've ever heard on the topic of Christ's ministry. And so if you were not here and missed this message, I strongly urge that you listen to it on sermon audio or ask for a copy of it on cassette. Our brother dealt with five aspects of Christ's ministry under the subheadings of administration, atonement, ascension, advocacy, and assurance. All that we need for a spirit-filled life and victory over our daily challenges in life. It was, in fact, the whole Bible beautifully summarized into one clear and concise message. You cannot afford to just let this one pass you by if you are serious about your faith. This morning, we once again resume our studies on the book of Exodus and shall focus on chapter 13, verses 1 to 22, as our main text for our message. And thank you once again, Luke, for reading this passage for us in its entirety. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 to 21, but uh, to 22, I think it is. But before we begin, let's ask the Lord for his blessings. Father, we are delighted to be here again this morning and to study thy word. We're so thankful, Father, that thou hast preserved thy word fully and completely so that there is not a single error in it this morning. And this book that we hold in our hands is indeed the very words that thou hast given to thy servants of old. And as we open the text this morning of Exodus chapter 13, we pray that the Holy Spirit might be pleased to grant us understanding of the text before us and what his will is for us this day. For we ask it in our Savior's name and always for his glory. Amen. In our last study, we looked at Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 51, in which we saw God bring down his tenth and final judgment upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt for their cruelty and bondage of the people of Israel. It was the death of the firstborn, both of man and of beast. Not a single firstborn was spared in Egypt who was not covered and protected by the blood of the sacrificial lamb and whose blood had not been sprinkled on the doorposts and lintel of each home. Not only was Pharaoh completely defeated, both physically and spiritually, but so too were all the remaining false gods of Egypt, the last one being Osiris, O-S-I-R-I-S, Osiris, their god of death. The Lord did exactly what he said he would do in Exodus 12, verse 12. We later 
find out in Numbers 33, verses 3 to 4, that the Lord had indeed executed judgment upon their false gods and destroyed them. Also in the latter part of the 12th chapter, we read about the institution of the first Passover and its rules. How a male lamb in his first year, unblemished, was to be taken from among the flock on the 10th of Nisan and separated for four days to be carefully observed, and if no blemish were found, it was then to be sacrificed on the 14th day of that same month. We saw also the fear and the horror of the destroying angel making his way at night through the streets of his uh, through the streets of Egypt slaying all the firstborn that were not covered under the blood and during the midst of this slaughter still in the night pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and told them rise up and get you forth from among my people both ye and the children of Israel and go Serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone. And bless me also. And so the children of Israel made haste and left during the early morning hours, but not before they spoiled the Egyptians. For we are told in verses 35 to 36 of that 12th chapter of Exodus, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Thus the children of Israel made their way with all their flocks and belongings, and with a mixed multitude of others who wished to escape the ravages of Egypt to Succoth. We were told in verse 37 that there were 600,000 men on foot beside children and women and a multitude of others who joined them. We estimated that this exodus may have been close to two and a half million souls, an incredible number of people to lead and to manage, and yet it was only possible because the Lord was the one who would lead them through Moses. The rest of the chapter reveals the details of the Passover and its observance. Now we come to chapter 13, which is our main text for this morning's sermon. In the opening few verses of this chapter, the Lord instructs Moses concerning the firstborn of Israel. First, we read in verse 2 that the firstborn of man and beast all belong to the Lord. It is mine, he tells Moses. Secondly, the Lord tells Moses that when they eventually enter the land of Canaan, in verse 11, that Israel must set aside or set apart all the firstborn, and they must either be redeemed or killed, verse 13. 
Now we need a little bit of clarification here since this is in its early stages and the laws concerning this aspect have not yet fully been revealed. But in short, we will learn later that God will designate animals as either clean or unclean. All the firstborn males of unclean animals, such as the ass named here in verse 13, must be redeemed by the sacrifice of a clean animal, such as a lamb. Otherwise, it is to be killed. However, all the firstborn of man must be redeemed because they too are unclean, since they are all sinners. And as we shall learn later on, the price of their redemption was to be five shekels. Numbers 18.16 tells us, And those that are to be redeemed from a month old shall thou redeem according to thine estimation for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty giras. But the firstborn of the clean animals were to be sacrificed and their blood sprinkled upon the altar for they were reckoned by God to be holy. Numbers 18.17 They, of course, were symbolic of the Holy Lamb of God who one day would come to Calvary and shed his pure, unblemished, undefiled blood for the redemption of all mankind. Thirdly, the Lord tells Moses that this story of redemption of the firstborn would be an ongoing teaching lesson of the children in the homes of the Israelites. Verse 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Later on, when the law is given, we read in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 7, the Lord's commandment concerning the Father's responsibility of teaching the Word of God to his children. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, etc., etc. And oh, how solemn and frightening a responsibility has been put upon the fathers concerning the teaching and training of their children in spiritual truths. And how we as fathers have miserably failed in these matters. Untold numbers of Christian households have absentee fathers, fathers who have either abandoned their children through divorce and separation, or have neglected this most important aspect of their role as head of the home. Without a strong male role model in the home, children have become a prey to the wicked one as he seeks to destroy these precious little souls 
by leading them into sexual promiscuity, drug and alcohol addiction, gender identity crisis, and so on. In the churches, Achilles' heel is the ne negligent father, those who leave the training of their ch own children to others. Notice, please, the 14th verse of this chapter carefully. The Lord says that thou shalt say unto him. It presupposes that the parents, the fathers in particular, are informed, are knowledgeable of the history of their people, that they know the word of God. Otherwise, how shall their children be given correct answers? It is no wonder why so many children, when they reach their adult years, want nothing to do with the things of God. And shame on us. Our children deserve better. Then as we return to our text in verse 4, the Lord once again reminds Moses that they came out in the month of Abib, or Nisan. That is our March-April and that when they arrive in the land of the Canaanites, that they are to keep this service, that is, the Feast of the Passover and Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we learn, immediately followed the Passover, and it lasted for seven days. The first day of the Unleavened Bread was a holy Sabbath, as well as the last day or the seventh day of Unleavened Bread. They were Sabbaths. And they had rules attached to them, which we, Lord willing, will look at some later date. But notice, please, verses 7 to 8. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Not only were they not to eat any leaven, but there was not to be any leaven found anywhere in their premises. And so the practice was that before the Passover, the Jewish families would cast out all leavened bread out of their houses. They burnt it. They buried it. They broke it into small pieces, scattering it into the wind. They were so diligent, according to historical accounts, that they would, with lit candles, search all the corners of their houses in case some leaven was still there. Leaven, of course, throughout all of Scripture, symbolizes sin, and God's people need to be as diligent in seeking to judge it and to confess it as the Israelites were in ridding their homes of leaven. Again, this was to be an object lesson for their children, verse 8, we are told. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. You see, dear friends, how powerful an authority God is. When our children question us, why do we do such and such a thing, or why they ought to behave in such and such a matter. The only answer that is strong enough to mold their character is God says in his word. And then 
when they still rebel, they are not rebelling against mom or dad, but God himself. And sooner or later, the Spirit of God will do his work of convicting and correcting them. Next, we come to the route that God chose to lead them, verses 17 to 19. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. Verse 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Please notice that there were two ways. One was short, from the north of Egypt to the south of Canaan, perhaps about a week's journey. But the other route was the long way, through the wilderness or the desert. And that is the way the Lord chose to lead them. His was the right way. Proverbs 16:25 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. God chose the route through the wilderness for several reasons. First, this was a huge, slow-moving mass of humanity moving through foreign lands. These were, by and large, slaves, farmers, artisans, young children, women, and old men. They were not warriors as of yet. They knew nothing about combat and fighting. To venture through Philistine territory would be imminent death and slaughter. And in the process, many would lose heart and seek to return to Egypt. Secondly, they had all along been told that their journey was to be three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice unto the Lord. The only suitable, safe, and unhindered place to carry out such sacrifices would be in the desert and not in hostile territory. And thirdly, it had to be through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea because the Egyptians were to be drowned in the Red Sea. And also, the Israelites would be tested and proved in the desert where there would be no interference from foreign tribes. And finally, God had originally told Moses that Moses would bring the children of Israel to the Mount of Sinai, which was in the desert, and there they would serve him. It is also the Mount where God would give his Ten Commandments to Moses on tables of stone. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God 
upon this mountain. Then in verse 19 of chapter 13 of Exodus, we read that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For the scriptures say that Joseph made the children swear that they would take his bones back to Canaan someday, into the land which God promised them, the land where Abraham, Isaac were buried. It is also probable and certain that the bones of the other sons of Jacob were also carried back if they had not already been. We also are told that the children of Israel were harnessed out of the land of Egypt in verse 18. In other words, this was an orderly caravan of people and herds leaving Egypt and not simply a disorganized, scattered mass of humanity. And so if we were to assume that they were organized in units of 25 people abreast, side by side, not including their herds, and we were to place this multitude on Woodlawn Road at the corner of Victoria Road in Guelph, it would be a line that would extend for nearly seven miles all the way from Victoria Road to Highway 7 en route to Kitchener, not including cattle and their belongings. So it was incredibly well organized and ordered even at this early stage. Thus, in verse 20 to 22, we see their journey moving from Succoth to Etham, where they encamp at the edge of the wilderness. Then the last two verses, verses 21 and 22, reveal how the Lord led and guided them on their journey. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, before we bring the sermon to its end, I would like to mention two more things before we finish. Number one, we are told that this huge caravan of some two hundred and a half million souls made its way to Etham, where they set up camp. Now, this place was east of the present Suez Canal, as best we can gather, on the border of the desert, where Israel made its second stop after leaving Egypt. Numbers 33.6 confirms this information for us. Again, we need to be mindful that this entire journey from Egypt was carefully planned by the Almighty himself. Nothing was done in haste or without thought. Number two, we see how carefully the Lord guided this large mass of souls, providing them with a physical manifestation of his presence with them in the form of a pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is what is called often in theological circles a theophany, the physical manifestation of of the pre-incarnate Christ, this pillar would navigate the uncharted waters for them. When it moved, they would move. 
When it turned, they would turn. When it stopped, they would stop. It would also shield them from their enemies later on, as we shall see later in Exodus 14, 19 to 20. The Lord not only leads his people sometimes into the desert and unknown territory to deliver them from their bondage, but he is also there with them, ensuring their safe passage. God gave him, gave them this visual testimony of his presence with them to strengthen their faith and to encourage them in an unknown land. This, of course, was vitally necessary since there were no familiar paths, no roads, no landmarks, no signs of civilization. This pillar sheltered them from the heat of the day and provided them with light during the night, thus lessening their fears. This presence never left them, reminding us of Christ's own words in the New Testament to his saints, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13, 5, which is a repetition of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Then in Revelation 10, verse 1, we are once again reminded of the Shekinah glory, which John was privileged to see in the Spirit. And I saw another mighty angel, that is Christ, come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Christ and Christ alone is our way, our light, and our guide. And so our chapter ends, and Lord willing, we will continue our studies with chapter 14 and some other future date. But you know, before I step down, I must always ask you some serious questions. Are you a child of God this morning? Have you ever been truly born again by the Spirit of God? In John 3, verses 5 to 7, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader and a teacher of the Old Testament scriptures, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So many professing Christians are so sloppy with their Christian walk. They say the right things, they profess the right doctrines, but their walk often does not match their talk. Oh, dear friends, be sure of your profession. Be sure that your sins have been all forgiven by Christ and Christ alone. Be sure that you have truly believed in his blood and his work on Calvary. Be sure that when this life is over, you will be in his presence. And if you perchance are not sure, then I plead with you while there is still yet time. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this story of Moses and 
the children of Israel in their deliverance from bondage. And though we are part of the church and not Israel itself, there are so many things that we can learn from these stories, especially how faithful our God is in keeping his promises. Help us, Lord, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior daily as we continue to read thy word and feed upon it so that we might be able to give an answer not only to strangers, but especially to our children and grandchildren, presenting our blessed Savior in the glorious light that he so richly deserves. For we ask it always in his name and for his glory.